0: It's just like, woof, like that's a big, uh, bummer. Hey, I have a story that might make you go oof or woof, depending on your translation of that word. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you guys a question. How often do you change your background on your phone? How often do you change your background on your phone? Are you changing like all the time? Or do you find something that's aesthetically pleasing? Now iOS 14's out, right? So you got this nice like layout, it's kind of fun, kind of cool. Um, so I-, I will admit to you that, I for a long time for a year had the same picture as my background. Would you like to know what that picture was? It's a picture of my wife. Okay. Oh, that's what the newlyweds do, right? You go, oh, a picture of your wife. And it was this nice picture I took on our honeymoon. It was a picture of her, but it was like taken from up high, and it was at Big Sur. So if you know where that is in Central California, it's got this super scenic background, and it's this awesome picture, and I liked it, and I thought, this is like my favorite picture ever. Um, and I took it of her, and it was so cool, and it was my background for a year. And then something happened. I had the urge. I'm like, wow, this has been my background screen for a long time you know what? I'm going to replace Alexandra, okay? And that's what I did. I replaced her. Um, I got rid of her off of my background screen. You know what I replaced her with? It's kind of sad when I say it. Um, The narrow logo, like when it came out, when it was new. It was kind of dumb. That is a big oof right there. Oof size large. Thank you. you, you probably would expect me not to treat my wife like I treated uh, the background screen of my wife, right? Um, probably not a good idea to just, uh, when I want to swap her out, just swap her out, right? That's probably not a good idea. Um, and you'd say that's because you treat a relationship with a person a lot different than you do the background, on your iPhone or or the background screen or anything else. You treat relationships different than images, right? You got images of people and that's great. And you can maybe put a, um, a picture of your family up, but when you take the picture of your family down, you're not saying, okay, I'm gonna get rid of my family now, right? Hopefully, what the image represents means more than just the image itself. And that's good, and that's true. The problem is that sometimes people, instead of treating others like they're real people, they treat them like they're images. They treat them just like they're pictures, and like they're not even real people. And that's going to happen today in the Gospel of John, when the people, instead of embracing Jesus as a person and trusting in Him, instead of doing that, they just want what they want. They want more bread. And we already talked about that last week, but I want us to roll into this and check out what John has to say in John chapter six. So please grab your Bible, turn to John chapter six. We're gonna see Jesus's words after he did this miraculous thing. Remember, he fed these people with bread. Now kind of comes the speech. Now comes what he's gonna say about it. And we talked about this a little bit because we already previewed this. There are people who came to Jesus and they wanted bread. And when they came to Jesus and wanted bread and didn't get it, what did they do? They left. They didn't wanna see Jesus anymore. They gave up on Jesus. They walked away from Jesus. Well, we're gonna see how that happened. And the reality is that a lot of people, maybe in this room, come to Jesus with the wrong expectations. They give up on Jesus after a little bit. After they get tired of him, after they get tired of church, and things aren't as good as they once were. they say, ah, I'm done with it. I'm gonna change it out. Just like people change out a background screen on their iPhone. But the thing is, Jesus says, no, I want you to embrace me and love me for the rest of your life. And that's what we're going to see here. So I said that Jesus is giving a speech. The speech really picks up in verse 35, which is five verses before where we're going to start. But I want us to read that again so we remember the context. We remember what we learned last week. In John 6, 35, after he's turned five loaves into 50,000 loaves, or however many thousands of loaves that fed these people. After he did that, They come back to him and said, hey, we want some more bread. That was really cool. I'm glad that you fed us. Can we get lunch today? You fed us lunch yesterday. Can we get lunch today? And Jesus says, you missed the point. I am, look at verse 35, I am the bread of life. That miracle was just a a pointer. It was just a signal. It was just a sign pointing to the reality. It says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're not talking about physical hunger. We're not talking about physical thirst. We're talking about something else. He's trying to get them to see this, this physical thing was just a, just a thing we we're trying to point to, to something else. Now, verse 36, it says, but I said to you that you have seen me, yet you don't believe. These people following Jesus, they don't even believe in him. Verse 37, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 38, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but I shall raise them up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, just to repeat for a third time, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we covered that last week, but I want you to get in your mind. Is Jesus talking about physical bread right here? Is that his main point? No, it's not, right? He's calling himself the bread of life, and how do you embrace the bread of life, right? How do you embrace him? He says it right here in verse 40, Whoever believes in the son, whoever trusts in Jesus, that's what Jesus is getting at. All of the physical, all of the signs are all pointing to that spiritual reality. Now, verse 41, look what it says. The Jews grumbled about him. And I don't think that that's an accident that John puts that in there. The Jews grumbled about him. Can you think of maybe another time where the Jews grumbled after they got bread? They grumbled, right? What does that remind you of? Mind you of the Old Testament, right? The book of Numbers, where they got this bread from heaven and what did they do afterwards? They grumbled and said, oh, I'm tired of Krispy Kreme donuts every single week. Could we get something else? And then God gave them quail, they gave them meat. And they said, that's lame and for 40 years, imagine eating. So this happened to me, I will admit to you. I, I, I complained this week and I should not have. Um, but on Wednesday, Wednesday at lunch, I didn't eat breakfast on Wednesday, but on Wednesday at lunch, it was staff lunch, okay? It was right in here in this room. And we had sergeant's pepperonis or whatever pizza, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, all right. It's not that good. Um, It's okay. Um, We had it cold, so it wasn't, it was a little chewy. And, you know, pizza. I like pizza, though. Everybody likes pizza, right? Unless you're a weirdo. Um, Or gluten-free. Sorry to disrespect you. You like pizza, too. You just like gluten-free pizza, right? Anyway, so I had pizza. And then what did we have for lunch at TNN on Wednesday night? What did we have? Oh, we had Costco pizza. Interesting. So I had pizza for lunch. I had pizza for dinner. And then the next morning, kind of had a granola bar. didn't have much. Had coffee, granola bar. And then what? (laughs) When I go home, okay, um, Alexander makes something for lunch. What do you think she might make for lunch, right? A pizza. And then I finally said, I'm tired of pizza, Okay. (laughs) I like pizza, but I've literally had it for two days, right? If I get sick this week, you know why. Because I had pizza for two straight days. Did we have pizza that night? We might have had pizza that night. Okay, that's crazy. Anyway, so we had pizza time and time and time again. And it was crazy, but I found myself feeling probably like the Israelites, they probably didn't feel so good having the same food every day. So they grumble. The Jews grumble about Jesus, and here's why. It says, because, verse 41, he said, I am am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They did not like that. They didn't like that he was the bread that came down from heaven. What does that say about Jesus? When Jesus claims to be, well, it says that Jesus comes from heaven. They didn't like that very much because that's saying, well, you're different than me. You come from heaven, right? I don't come from heaven. The Jews are like, well, we don't come from heaven. That's interesting. Verse 42 says, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They say, he can't come from heaven. We know his parents. That doesn't make any sense. Verse 44, or verse 43, sorry. Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves, which which should remind you of these Old Testament people who grumbled after receiving a, a meal from God. It says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is giving an interesting insight to what happens when people come to Jesus and really trust him. What is happening all along? Jesus is explaining that right here. Jesus is saying that it's not just something that they do and they choose. This is something that's going on beforehand, that God is drawing them to himself. That's what's going on here. So check this out. Verse 45, he says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. And that is right comes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. How about you guys write that down? Isaiah 54, 13. That's what this reference comes from. This reference, Isaiah 54, 13, is something that was probably on their minds when Jesus said this. He's quoting this. They should remember this. And here's what Jesus says about that. Here's his little commentary. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, if you think backwards, all the people that come to Jesus, what's going on before they come to Jesus? God is doing something in their hearts. God is drawing them to himself. It says even, it's like he's teaching them. Then verse 46, he clarifies, not that anyone's seen the father. And sometimes the Jews really stumbled over that. They said, well, no one can see God. And Jesus says, you're right. No one can see God except there is someone who can see God. uh, He who is from God. And what is he doing? He's, you know, when he's saying that, he's pointing at himself. Right? Except me, because I've come from God. He has seen the father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. So, how does a person get to know God? How does a person get satisfied? And how does a person have a relationship with God? Is it through any works of their own? Is it through anything they can do? No. Right? It's through Jesus, because he says, I am the bread of life. That's what that means. Verse 49 it says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. He says, here's the thing. The food I just fed you yesterday is a lot like the manna from the Old Testament. It was a miraculous meal, okay? And that's how I want you to think about that. It was a miraculous meal. It was something that was out of the ordinary, supernatural. It was a meal that God fed the people. What was it supposed to do? Man in the wilderness, it was supposed to lead them to say, I need to trust the Lord, not anything that I'm gonna do. What is Jesus's miracle all about? It's about trusting Jesus to give salvation. So he says, those people who ate that manna, they ate it and died. It didn't give them any spiritual life. It says, I am the living bread. Different than just bread that you eat and consume. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's where the, 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 the music in the background goes, dun, dun, dun. All right. He says, it's my flesh that's a little extreme, Jesus. He's saying, are you, here, here's how you get life, Jesus is saying. Eat my flesh. Eat it. <laughs> it's like, well, how does that work? Uh, do I have to eat someone's body, right? Well, what has Jesus been talking about this whole time? He's been talking about embracing him. So this is another metaphor that Jesus gives. He's not literally saying, you should actually eat, you know, my, my, my muscles and my bones. That's not what he's saying, That's missing the whole point because he's been saying, you need to believe in me. Now, verse 52, what happens when the Jews here eat my flesh? They say, wait a minute, that can't be right. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And if you're thinking this is a weird sermon that Jesus is preaching, right? You're probably thinking like the Jews are. But I want you to think in a different way. If I told you, I have a book for you. I have a biography of somebody or a documentary that I'm gonna uh, send you a link to. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to devour that book, devour that book. And then also drink in all the wisdom that you can get from that book. Would you say, ew, John, I can't, I can't eat a book. Are you kidding me? Why are you telling me to eat a book, right? You told me to devour a book, right? You'd say, no, oh, well, that's not what he meant. He meant like ingest it, right? Even that, that word ingest, what does that mean, right? <laughs> that means eat, right? We use the language all the time. So Jesus is not doing anything all that weird, right? It's kind of weird on the surface, but you gotta get to what he's really saying, right? And even the whole drink my blood, right? That's not something that was allowed, you can't drink blood. It was, a, it was a bad thing. It was against the law in the Old Testament, right? I don't know if it's against the United States law, but I would not recommend it, right? Not smart. Don't drink blood. That's gross. Um, that's not what he's trying to really say. He's trying to say, you got to benefit from my death, even my flesh. And I want you to think, how can a person benefit from the life and death of Jesus? How can you gain something and benefit just like you gain something when you eat food? Because remember, every time you eat food, What's happening? Something is dying so that you can live. Something is dying so that you can have the energy. That's what calories are. They're, they're units of energy, right? That's what every time we have something to eat, even if it's um, like a plant, even if it's not meat, right? it was still alive at one point and you're getting the energy from it. That's, that, that's what Jesus is trying to say. I'm going to give my life for the world. Not just my, my, my life, like my soul life, but my, my flesh life too, like my, bod- my bodily life. He's giving that. For them now, verse fifty-three. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." All right? You can see why the Jews were kind of freaked out about this. He's saying you got to eat Me for for you to live, and they're saying we can't eat people. That's gross. Right? Well, that's not what he meant. I, I just think that that word is so interesting. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. If you take verse 40, right, you even take some other verses that we got going on in this passage and say, he said, do something and you'll live forever, right? And then he says, eat my flesh and you'll live forever, right? That means eat my flesh, drink my blood means something else. It means, what does it mean? To believe in Jesus. Those two things are substituted out for one another. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. They have a relationship with me, and I in him. Verse 57. As the living father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, not like that manna. That was just physical food. It says, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. You can tell why some people were freaked out. Some people did not like this message from Jesus, because he's saying, you need to embrace me as a sacrifice. They didn't like that. They said, you have to embrace me as a sacrifice for sin, and that's what we have to do. That's point number one. I know there's a lot of buildup for that, but write this down for point number one. Embrace Jesus as the sacrifice for your sin. Embrace Jesus as the sacrifice for your sin. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, I believe that Jesus gave his life for people. I believe that. I believe he died for people. It's another thing for you to personally embrace his sacrifice for your sin, for the things that you've done wrong, for the lies that you've told, for the times you've disobeyed your parents. It's one thing just to agree that he could do that. It's another thing to trust that he's done that for you. Okay? That's very different. And here's the thing. In this passage, there are people who are called disciples. They're called disciples. What that means is a follower or someone who's been taught disciples who walk away. What he's not saying is there are people who are real Christians who really trust in Jesus that bail after a while. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there are people who kind of came on the fringes, was interested in hearing about the Bible, interested in coming to TNN, small groups, church, but then they bailed because they'd never really trusted in Jesus. This is a turning point in the gospel of John, and this is a turning point for a lot of people. And I even want this morning to be a turning point for a lot of you, Maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you've known the gospel and you've said, hmm, it's interesting. Maybe, maybe I'll deal with that later. Maybe I'll worry about that when I get older. Well, he says, you have to embrace me as a sacrifice. I want to turn to another passage that kind of explains more of what that means, to embrace Jesus as a sacrifice. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine. This might be a part of the Bible you don't know very much about, be a time when in the daily Bible reading, we go to the book of Hebrews, and you're like, whoa, this is confusing. I don't know what's going on with all these sacrifices and laws. Well, I want to explain this because I think actually the author of Hebrews explains exactly what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6. To benefit from someone's flesh and blood is a concept that is foreign to us, okay, other than the concept of eating. I think that's helpful. You still understand that when you eat a hamburger. When you eat a Chipotle burrito, right, you're benefiting from the chicken, that little chicken with no head, right? Um, Well, they had a head at one point, you know. I don't know how that works if they don't have one. If you know, maybe get back to me if they can live without a head. Um, But you know what I mean, right? You benefit from that chicken's life. That chicken died, now you're eating it. You're getting the energy that it had in its life. Now it's being transferred over to you through calories, Well, there was another way, more a symbolic way, that these Jews would have understood this to be talking about. They, they're thinking about sacrifices, okay? In the Old Testament, what they would do as a symbol and as a picture of what Jesus was gonna do, what God said, I want all these people to do, these Jewish people, is I want you to take your guilt, transfer it over to an animal, and then have the priests kill this animal. Have them spill their blood. And that's gonna be a picture that because of your sins, someone has to pay. That was this picture. And the Jews understood that about sacrifice but what they didn't understand is Jesus was claiming to be that sacrifice. Now, look at verse 11. This is Hebrews 9, 11. Hopefully you're there at this point. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation at least, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. He's saying when Jesus shed his blood, what is he doing? One sacrifice for everyone who believes in him. And this is why um, when some people talk about uh, communion, a lot of people like to talk about communion and and Lord's Supper, especially when you're talking about John chapter 6, because it sounds like Jesus is kind of talking about that. Here's the problem with people who view communion as something where Jesus dies every time. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus died once. Jesus did not have to die every time that you sin. Sometimes we think about it that way, that every sin deserves death. That's true, right? So now instead of picturing every sin that you do, Jesus dies again. That's not biblical. What you should picture is every time you sin, that's another death sentence that goes on Christ. That Christ has billions upon billions of death sentences that he took in one day. Now think that through. If Jesus was able to satisfy all those death sentences in one day, what must that have been like for him? How did God punish Jesus? If in one afternoon, Jesus paid for all of the sins that everyone who believes in him committed, that makes the cross a lot bigger. That makes it a lot more amazing. Look at verse 13. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? And right? those things were just goats and heifers, right? That's this word in the South. That means a, an ugly girl. Um, <laughs> it means a female cow, right? Uh, they say they're a heifer, right? I always think that's weird. Whenever we read Hebrews 9, it's like, that's what people say, right? Um, sorry, I don't know why I thought of that. Um, that's what a heifer means, right? It's a, it's a cow right? Can the blood of goats, bulls, cows, even in some cases, they, they would sacrifice birds, right? Little, little birds for people who didn't have as much money. They'd bring birds. Can that blood of those people, can that atone anything? Can that really, according to God, say, yeah, I'm, that's acceptable. I'm glad that that animal died for them. No, that was just a picture. It says the blood of Jesus, so that can do it. It says verse 14. I'll say this again. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the only way we can have a right relationship with God and start serving him, is if Jesus died for our sins with his blood and his life. Now, go down to chapter 10, verse one. He explains it some more. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form, Which these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What that says is the sacrifices, the, the goats, the bulls, the heifers, the pigeons, all those things that they give to God cannot ever do anything to change their relationship with God. The answer is truly no. In the Old Testament, God set up this system so that it would make them see their need for a real human sacrifice. And not just a a human who's sinful, right? You can't just push your friend out and say, well, they can be my sacrifice for me, right? Or my mom or my dad can be. No, they have to be perfect. It says Jesus is the only one who's able to do that. Look at verse four. It says this again. It says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Jews thought, maybe this is possible. And even in Jesus' time when he's talking in John six, maybe they thought, well, I don't need you to be a sacrifice for me because I already have the animals and the goats, the author of Hebrews says, deep down, don't you know? You, you know that like this is not really fixing the problem. Verse 11, check that out. Maybe next page for you. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10. says, and the priests stand daily at their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, right? So here's how it works with Jesus. He's able to cover your sin by one sacrifice. What does that say? First of all, it says that Jesus is really, really good. Jesus is really, really important. Jesus is really perfect, really morally upright, really righteous, really good in all the ways that were not good. His death was able to cover your sins. You can be a sacrifice. He can be a sacrifice for you, a substitute for you verse 13 it says now we wait or he waits jesus waits from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet that's a reference to psalm 110 verse 1 that jesus said about himself a lot it says for a single offering by a single offering he has perfected for all time has he made better for all time Has he made you a little, he's like taking care of your sin but not giving you righteousness. He's like, he's cleaned you up a little bit but you have to like kind of work yourself a little bit. No, perfected for all time. Everybody, right? Nope, not everybody. All those who are being sanctified. All those who trust in Jesus. He makes them perfect, clean, washed, regenerated, new, forgiven, righteous by one sacrifice. Now, that's really good news, but the problem is not everybody's going to embrace that good news. Look at verse 26. Here's what happens. It says, but if we go on sinning deliberately, right, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we know the truth that Jesus is our sacrifice. We know that he died for us. We know that in our heads. But if we go on sinning deliberately and saying, you know what? I'm not going to, no, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do my sin. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Here's how you can think about it, maybe in a different way. It might make more sense to you. Um, imagine you've got a backpack and we're putting a bunch of books in it, a bunch of bricks in it. Right? This is how um, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, it's put. They got this, this load, right? this thing that they're carrying. If you have to carry that load by yourself, when God judges you, all of that sin guilt that's put in this load, that's just dumped more stuff in your backpack and more stuff, and then you end up like a person you know, in one of those countries that's carrying a ton of you know, things on their head right? and they're carrying all this stuff. If it's just more guilt and more guilt and more guilt and you have to pay for that guilt when you die, right? it'll be on you. That's what he says right here. Where there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. If you're gonna reject Jesus, who's able to take that away and he's able to bear all of that sin guilt, all of your sin guilt. He's able to take it from you, right? But if you say, nope, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm not going to trust Jesus. And I certainly won't follow Jesus. If that's what you're going to do with your life and you have that choice. It says, we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There is no sacrifice for sins. If you don't have Jesus, you will have to pay for your sins on your own. That's what it says. Verse 27 it says, there's no sacrifice for sins, but there is for those people who reject Jesus, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, right? Which you might say, ooh, yeah, God can consume those bad people. Who's the bad people in this situation? The people who don't trust Jesus, the people who aren't Christians, And you might not think of, you might think of yourself in this third category. You're like, well, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not Christian yet, uh, but it's not like I'm rejecting Jesus. Oh, yes, you are rejecting Jesus, if you aren't embracing Jesus, you are rejecting him. You are one of these adversaries. that it says his fury of fire, his, his judgment is going to get you. It's going to catch up to you. Verse 28 says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, All right? Law of Moses was like a, a lot like the law today, that there's certain rules that if you broke those rules, you deserve to be punished, right? And a lot of them were, were bad, capital punishment. If you War two, there's a law that if you struck your parents, if you you beat your parents up, which is like, whoa, that's really bad. It says a person who beats their parents up will be put to death. That was a death penalty in the Old Testament because you were supposed to honor and respect your parents. It says if you did that and two or three witnesses, two people saw you do it, three people saw you do it, and they could testify, this is what happened, I saw them do it, and they, they stand in court and say, this is what happened. What it says here is they should rightfully face whatever punishment the law says. If they can be proved by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, verse 29 says, how much worse punishment do you think? He asked the question to the reader. Now you can think, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant? Now think this through. Someone died for you. That's that's what the gospel says. Someone died for you. And it wasn't just anybody. It wasn't me. It wasn't your friend. It wasn't your family member. It was Jesus, the God man, the one who we studied two weeks ago, who said he's the God man. The one who here in John chapter six was able to do miracles. That person died for you, an important person. The most important person in the universe died for you. Not just for me, not just for my friends. No, 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 but for you. Okay, now think this through. He died for you. And now this is what it's saying for everyone who doesn't embrace Jesus. Is this like you're, Just saw him die, he died for you, and you're just like stepping on him. You're trampling him under your foot. Maybe in a more real sense, it's like if someone pushed you out of the way in the middle of the street and ended up getting hit by a car and and dying, right? Happens all the time, and people save other people by doing that, right? It's like if you saw that happen, and it happens to you, and you see the bang, you hear the bang, and you see it happen to you, and you see how gross it is, and then he died for you. This person pushed you out of the way and saved your life. Be like, if you, after that, just walked over him. Oh. I don't know why you did this for me. Walked over him, stepped on his blood. Right? You'd say, that's horrible. You, could ne- you would never do that, ever do that. Here's the thing. Everybody who hears the gospel and does not embrace Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, that is what you're doing. Not to me, not to your parents, not to your small group leaders, but that's what you're doing to Jesus. So please don't do that. Verse 30, he says, "For We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We know that God's the judge. We know he's gonna take care of judgment. Just realize this, that if you don't embrace Jesus, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To reject Jesus, to hear the truth and reject him. I just wanna ask, is that what you have been doing? You've come to church, you've heard the gospel. Have you been rejecting Jesus and saying, nope, 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 not gonna follow him, not gonna trust him? Day after day, week after week. If that's you, just want you to see you can be saved of all of that. Right? God will forgive you for stepping on his son's blood. He will forgive you this morning. He will forgive you of something you don't deserve to be forgiven of. I certainly didn't. I did that a lot. I stepped on Jesus' blood a lot because I went to a lot of sermons and I took a lot of notes and I had binders and I had pages full of notes and I was in 180 and I did all, uh, train now, right? I did all that stuff and all the while, I Stepping on Jesus' blood. I don't want to trust you. I don't want to follow you. I did that. I don't deserve to be forgiven at all. I just wonder how many of you are in that stage right now, and this morning, you could be forgiven of your sins, and you know it. But that's not how this story went in the Gospel of John. It would have been great if everybody said, you're right, Jesus. We need to trust you. You're going to die for us. We trust you. Absolutely. Absolutely. What happens? Turn back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to look at the last verses here. Verse 60. John chapter 6, verse 60. It says, And all his disciples heard what he said and said, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. You see where it says that? Doesn't say that. Just like the sad reality that all the people in the narrow might go out after this service and not respond to Jesus in repentance and faith and after this, after many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What that means is this this is just too much. Jesus saying he has to die for us. I don't like that. Maybe Jesus can like do good stuff and be a good example for us, but I don't want him to be a sacrifice, a bloody, dead sacrifice for us. That's gross. I don't like that. It's a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself, that his disciples were grumbling. That's a very important phrase. His disciples were grumbling. Who was grumbling before? The Jews, right? The outer crowds. Now who's grumbling? The inner crowds. Just like I might say, yeah, people in the world, they might not like that Jesus is king. They might not want to submit to him. They might not want to follow him, right? And they grumble about that. Here's the thing, what about the people in the church? What about you sitting in the seats? Do you grumble of what Jesus says? That he gave his life for you? Do you grumble? You say, ah, it's too hard. I don't want to follow him. It's too much, too big of a commitment. I can't make that commitment. Since he knew that they were grumbling about this. And Jesus said to them, don't, do you take offense at this? Are you offended that I have to die for you? That I'm your sacrifice? That you, can't sac- that you can't sacrifice bulls and goats and that stuff doesn't take away your sin? Are you offended at that? Another thing, remember what they were offended about? That he claimed to be from heaven? I think that's what he's referring to right here. He said, Are you offended that I claim to be from heaven? that I existed before I was born? Are you offended by that? He says, just wait. You just wait. If you're offended by this, verse 62, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? If you think it's bad that I claim to come down from heaven, you're gonna be really offended when you see me go back to heaven. That's gonna freak you out. You're not gonna like that. Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's amazing when we talk about what's going on behind the scenes in salvation. What did Jesus already say the Father was doing to these people? To those that are going to follow Jesus, what was the Father doing? Right? Dragging them on, drawing them in. Right? Now, who's the one who gives life to them? Right? The Spirit. Well, how does that work? Right? Through Jesus' sacrifice. That's exactly what Ephesians talks about when it talks about what the Trinity does in our salvation, that the Father draws us, that Jesus redeems us, and the Spirit makes us alive. It's exactly what the rest of the Bible teaches. It's amazing how the whole Bible fits together in this way. That's what it says. It says the Spirit gives life, but the flesh, it's no help at all. If you just want to think about whatever you're going to think about in your worldly, fleshly environment, right? There's a lot of things we got to think about. We've got to think about school, sports. If we want to just distract ourselves and say, I know I heard spiritual truth today at church, and I, I just don't want to deal with it. I just don't want to deal with it. So the flesh is no help at all. If you walk out of this room after hearing the gospel, right, and, and you get distracted with all the things you get distracted with, that's not going to be helpful for you responding. That's no help at all. But verse 64, there are some of you, who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe, and who it was who was going to betray him. So here's a big difference, right? One of, the, one of the many big differences between me and Jesus. Here's a huge difference. Jesus knew every last one of them in their hearts. He knew if they believed, he knew if they would believe, and he knew if they're trusting him right now, okay? I am completely blind to that for this room. I have no idea, Right? Some of you claim to trust in Jesus, and you're not really trusting Jesus, Others of you are trusting Jesus, maybe for the first time recently, right? And maybe I haven't heard about that yet. So Jesus knows his crowd perfectly. Here's the thing I can't do. I can't say, well, I know you're saved. I know you're not saved. Right? Only Jesus can do that, which means only for right now, you're the only person that could really answer this question. Are you trusting Jesus? Jesus knew his crowd, just like Jesus knows this crowd. He knows Right, which is why if you try to fake your small group leader and try to fake me, right, it just, it's, just, it's just a stupid thing to do because it's like, well, who are you going to fake out God? Right? Can, I, can John save you? Can your small group leader save you? Right, no, then why are you trying to fake them out? Right? What good is that? Right? If you can't fake God out, you're just playing the game. It says, look, these people, they could not fake Jesus out. He knew. Verse 65 says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father an amazing spiritual truth that God picks people and God draws people to himself. Now, verse 66, after this, right? Jesus just put the knife in even deeper with a lot of these people. He just twisted it there. Verse 66, he says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know, when you picture who follows Jesus, you might only picture the 12, but that was not the reality. It was more than just the 12. The 12 were his closest guides, but there was probably about 150 people who would follow Jesus. Not all at once, not all at the same time. But after this, the crowd gets very, very small. Many, not some, not a couple, many people. Imagine that. These people gave up everything to follow Jesus for a little bit. So they they gave up. They said, not gonna do this. Now, verse 67. So Jesus turned to the 12, to his closest guys, and he asked them this question. Do you wanna go away as well? I mean, imagine Jesus sticking his finger in your face and saying, are you gonna walk away too? We know these people walked away. Are you gonna walk away? I mean, that's kind of an offensive question. That question hurts. If Jesus asked you that, if Jesus asked me that, that would kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. I'm just gonna be honest. Probably hurt their feelings a little bit too that Jesus questioned them. But here's what Peter says. He gives the only right answer that he could give. And it's the perfect answer at this point. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's the Hebrews 10 question. Is there any other sacrifice for sins? Who who else are we going to go to? We can't leave you. Because you have the words of eternal life. You're the only one that can save us, the only one. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the holy one of God. We understand all those connections in the Old Testament. We know that you are the sacrifice for our sins. We know you are the only one that can give us eternal life. That's the right answer. Where else are we going to go? But Jesus answered them to this 12, this group that's close. He says, did I not choose you, the 12? And Peter might say, hold on. I kind of chose you a little bit, right? Like, like I left everything to follow you. Matthew might be there and said, wait, hold on, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you, you might have chose me, but like I left the, the tax booth. Right? That's how it feels to us. But what's really going on behind the scenes? Is it God who chooses us or we that choose God? Right? Yeah, we might choose God, but who's doing the first choosing who's doing the motivational choosing right? and who's drawing us and who's giving us life and who's redeeming us right salvation it's, it's all from god it says i chose you but one of you is a devil that means an opponent one of you is not really with me you're gonna end up being an opponent Then john adds something here in verse 71 he says he spoke of judas the son of simon iscariot for he one of the 12 was going to betray him now i want you to think this through which one are you, are you Judas, are you Peter? Are you gonna say, I'm gonna cash out on Jesus once I, I don't have any more friends at church, then I'll bail on Jesus. Once my small group's not as fun as it used to be, and oh man, maybe high school, maybe it will be hard, and college, it'll be even harder to obey God. Am I gonna cash out then, or am I all in? Am I all about serving God, because where else are we gonna go? Point number two is this, I want you to endure with Jesus. And his life-giving words. Endure with Jesus and his life-giving words. I want you to imagine that something tragic happens. We find out that um, I've got some rare illness. Right? This is not true as far as I know. Um, I guess this could be true, but I don't know. Um, I've got some rare illness. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with my blood or something's wrong um, with me. And it's so rare that there's not really a good treatment out there. It's not really something that I can do to be saved from this medical ailment. Um, But there is one thing. I visit doctors. I don't like going to doctors. I'll visit them and they say, look, here's your only hope. Here's a prescription. This is a new thing that's come out. It's a new um, way to treat this. I will write it out exactly how it is right here on this prescription. I will give you this prescription. But this is like, this is all I can do. This is it right here. I say, okay, thanks for that. I take it kind of fold it once, just like you take things and you put, when you put things in your pocket, you fold them, right? Of course you do, right? Everybody folds them, right? You fold them and put them in your pocket, right? Then I'm feeling good that I just got some words that might lead to my life. So I say, hey, let's go to Chipotle. And we go to Chipotle and I order, I swipe the card, right? Or insert chip, right? Obviously, don't don't swipe. Uh, And they give me a receipt. I say, cool. Put it up, crumple it up, put it in my pocket. Then I'm like, this is really fun. You know, I, I like spending money. Uh, let's, let's go to Cold Stone. Right? Then we go to Cold Stone, right? swipe the card, get the receipt, crumple it up, put it in my pocket. Right? Now my, my pocket's got a lot of things in it. It's very full of some words that are important, some words that aren't. Then I go home. Right? I say, whoa, I've got all these receipts going on in my pocket here. Uh, let's just throw them all out. And I throw them all away. You'd say, John, You're stupid, right? It's just really dumb. You had a prescription in there. You had the one thing that can give you life and then you went to Chipotle and you went to to Cold Stone and you you, you put those receipts in your pocket. Then you just threw everything away. Are you ridiculous? You'd say, you never do that. You'd treat those words of life as they're so important to you because they're the only things that can give you life. You treat them so carefully, so important. The problem is a lot of us when we hear the gospel, we do just that get a lot of messages, a lot of things, and we kind of just put them in our pocket and maybe deal with them. And maybe when we're done with them, just throw them out later. Here's the thing. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And what we spoke about this morning is good news, that Jesus can be your sacrifice. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to take that, crumple it up, throw it away, and maybe I'll deal with that when I'm older? Or are you going to deal with that this morning? you going to deal with it today by talking to your parents, maybe talking to a leader, maybe Some stats that people throw out, and I don't know how true these are. Um, I assume they're probably mostly true. Um, That two-thirds of students who go to youth group, two-thirds of people who grow up in the church, whose parents are are professing Christians, two-thirds will walk away. I don't know, maybe you've never heard that before, but that's what the stats say, I guess. That means in a room like this where maybe there's 50 or so of you, Almost 30 of you will say, nope, don't want don't to follow Jesus. And maybe that's the same stats as the crowd. I don't know how many people there were. Maybe 66% left. I don't know. But a lot of them left because they said, I don't want to give my life to Jesus, and I don't want to get, get Jesus' life into mine because that's just too confusing. That's too weird. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to do that. People leave. People leave the church all the time they walk away from jesus often i just want you to see that if you were to walk away from church we talked about this last week why do people walk away they walk away because they want something that they don't get they want friends and then things don't work out and then they say i don't want jesus anymore right? problem is they were seeking jesus so they could have friends not so that they could have salvation in jesus right? We talked about that last week but this week we talked about what it looks like to really embrace jesus And really endure with Jesus. Because everyone who really believes, what does it say? God will hold them, verse 34 even, of our or verse um, 40 of our passage last week. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes. Everyone who trusts in Jesus will have life. That just means that the people who walk away, they never really trusted in Jesus. They came to Jesus and they wanted his stuff. They wanted friendships. They wanted relationships. But they didn't want him. I want to leave you with that again this week. Are you going to embrace Jesus or will you today reject him again? Or maybe for the first time. If this is the first time you're hearing this, right? Don't reject him. How, how do we embrace him? What does that look like? What do I have to do, right? That's what the Jews ask. What good thing do I have to do? You have to believe, you have to trust. What does that look like? That looks like asking God for forgiveness, Asking God to forgive your sins, not based on the fact that you think that you're a good person, but because you know you're not a good person. Asking God for forgiveness, saying, God, I don't deserve to have my sins taken away from me. I deserve to bear them. I deserve to be punished for them. But Jesus died and he died for me. And I trust that he died for me. I don't just believe that he died for some people. I believe he died for me and that he, he paid for my sin and, a, and asking God, please apply that to me today, please. I've got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere else to go. And that's the truth. We've got nowhere else to go. Please don't walk away from Jesus now, in the future, when you're in high school, college, don't walk away from him. And here's one way that you can ensure that you'll never walk away from him. Here, here's the one way by trusting completely in him. Everyone who trusts in him, he says, I will never cast out. That's from last week's passage. Never cast them out. God will not cast you out if you come to him today and ask him to save you and forgive you of your sins. He will never cast you out. He will embrace you in a way that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve. He's able to do that. And I want to think about that. I want to pray about that right now before we head out, before we go back to our lives that are full of the flesh, right? The spirit gives life, but the flesh is no help at all before we get distracted with lunch and our parents and our little siblings and everything else. wants to think about this and maybe you need to talk to God about this right now. So let's pray and talk to God. God, we believe that Jesus was telling the truth here. There's only one option for us if we want to be forgiven. If we want to know you, there's one option and that is to put our whole trust, our whole belief, our whole life into you and ask you to save us and trust that you will. Pray for the students right now who um, are confident that they don't belong to you, the ones who know that. I ask that you would convict them. Pray that you would do that work that you say you do all the time where you draw sinners and you draw people to yourself. I pray that that sacrifice that you did once, once and for all, that one sacrifice you did would be applied to them when they trust you pray for some students who right now as they hear my voice they know that they need to trust you right now pray that they would give up the ownership of their life the control of their life and give it completely to you and that you would save them that you would do something that's a miracle just like the miracle of the loaves, just like the miracle of the manna, just like the miracle of Jesus walking on water. It's a miracle that every time a a sinner puts their trust in you, that you forgive them. That's miraculous. Pray that you would do that this morning. Pray that those who are tempted to walk away, that think other things are better than following you, I pray that you would show them this week that that's not true and that you would turn them to yourself soon. Pray that students would not walk over your blood anymore, that they wouldn't walk out today without trusting you pray that other students would be bold enough to ask questions and they're unsure about things. I pray that they'd ask their leaders and they'd ask their parents, but ultimately I pray that they would trust you. You're our only hope. There's nowhere else we can go. In Jesus' name we pray.